0: chapter 21, reading verses 1 to 11. These are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year he shall go free, without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters... The woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children, and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money."
1: Join me as I pray briefly, Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are entering some of the trickier sections in Exodus now. Uh, we have had all of the exciting drama of the Exodus itself and the rescue from Egypt. We've had the great revelation of the Ten Commandments of God. And now if you came to Exodus 21 in your personal reading of God's Word each day, you may well be tempted to skip it or to skim it. You know that you're going to get back to the kind of great narrative of the golden calf and the rebellion of God's people and all that would follow after that in chapter 32. Maybe, maybe we'll just jump to chapter 32. It might discourage you to know that I had a quick look at a number of other churches in this country and elsewhere, and many of them stopped preaching Exodus once they've done chapter 20. <laughs> well, that is a tempting thing to do personally and in a church family, but we're not going to do it, and we're not going to do it because we are convinced that every word of God is breathed out, li- inspired by Him in order that we would be men and women who understand the world in which we live and the God who has made us and placed us in it. Having said all of that, we do need to understand where we're going. Because if we don't, we're going to create some very significant ethical dilemmas for ourselves. Let me explain what I mean. If we assume that we are to treat all of the laws that come in chapter 21 and for the rest of Exodus in the same way that we view the Ten Commandments, we're going to have some headaches. So our passage this morning is all about a form of slavery. Does that mean that we should practice slavery today? Do we need Exodus 22 verse 29 to give our firstborn sons to God. Do you see the dilemma that's brewing with some of the laws that we are going to work through? And the conundrum for Christians is, if we are going to treat any of those laws any differently, why should we treat them differently? God has spoken and given us the Ten Commandments. God is speaking and is giving us all of these extra laws that we're going to work through over the next few weeks and months. So why should we as Christians respond, apply, think about those laws differently? Why is it right for us? I want us to nail this question right into the center of our minds so that we know how we're going to respond to this question. Why is it right for us to uphold the commandments in chapter 20 and think about the laws in chapter 21 and following differently? That's the key question. Now that's a question if you're a Christian, because you believe that God's word is true and you believe that it's our responsibility to handle his word rightly. So that's a real question for you. You get to chapter 21, how am I supposed to understand and apply this part of God's word? But it's also a really key question that our world is asking of Christians and of the Bible. Topics like slavery and gender equality and many other things are massive issues in our day and passages like this one are some of the most common passages that people will turn to to say your god is unjust or sexist or whatever other things they want to say about god and we need to see how big an issue this is so that we approach this passage in the right way to understand it understand it and handle it rightly and to respond to those really important questions that your friends and my friends have about the Bible. So before we get into the text, and we are going to be in this text this morning, we're going to take a step back and see the bigger picture. I want to help you understand how to handle this part of the law of God, so that when we apply it to verses 1 to 11 and to the rest of Exodus, and to all of Leviticus, and anywhere else that you see the law of God, you know how to approach those passages. Right. We reminded ourselves last week that it's God who gave the Ten Commandments. If you look back at verse 22 of of, uh, chapter 20, and verse 1 of chapter 21, God's still the one giving these laws too. What I want you to see is how Moses very clearly shows us that these are two different categories of law. So we don't just continue reading from chapter 20 in the same way when we get to chapter 21. I want to see four key differences. Firstly, last week we saw that God spoke the Ten Commandments to all the Jews. You can see that in chapter 20. We went to Deuteronomy 5, where you've got this very clear picture of the God of heaven bellowing down from Mount Sinai and terrifying all the people with the power of his word because God spoke to all the people. It's not the same with the laws that follow. Look at verse 22. God spoke to Moses. Verse 1 of chapter 21. Moses then had to set those laws before the people. God gave the commandments directly to all the people and the laws that followed to Moses to pass on to the people. Secondly, God describes the Ten Commandments differently. Beginning of chapter 20, God spoke all these words. If you have ever done any reading around the Ten Commandments, you sometimes find that they're referred to as the Ten Words. And you're like, well, there's more than ten words, so where does that come from? It comes from here, verse 1. God spoke all these words. Words. But at the beginning of chapter 21, Moses told them, These are the laws you're to set before them. They're two very different, deliberately different Hebrew words. And when we get to the end of this set of rules, Moses is going to use a different term to describe all the laws that he's just given. So if you flick over to chapter 24, uh, chapter 24 and verse 7. Moses, referring to all the laws from chapter 21, then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. And that, if you lived in the ancient Near East, was completely normal. That's how kings ruled. They would have some kind of headline rules for everybody, and then there'd be a whole load of details. If we were living in the UK, Primary legislation, secondary legislation, this is how you're going to put it into practice. And everybody in the ancient Near East would have known that. And God uses a similar approach here, and he makes that clear, thirdly, in the different ways that these laws are recorded. Only the Ten Commandments were inscribed by the finger of God. That's what Moses tells us, Exodus 31 and verse 18. The rest of the law, Exodus 24, verse 4, was written down by Moses. And all of those differences are then reflected in the way that those different laws are referred to throughout the rest of the scriptures. So the Ten Commandments are repeated regularly throughout the Old and the New Testament in ways that show us that they are a summary of God's moral law, his teaching for his people. So when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He tells the person that he is speaking to that there are two great commandments. What are those commandments? They're summaries of commandments 1 to 4. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And summary of commandments 5 to 10. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. So even when you get to Jesus explaining what is the greatest commandment, he's going back to the commandments, distilling them down to two because of the importance of the Ten Commandments. Now, that's not the same with the laws that come after the Ten Commandments. When the New Testament writers refer back to them, they don't usually apply them directly. Usually what happens is they will quote them and apply the principle differently. Real life example. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, God gave the people a commandment not to muzzle an ox while it's working so that it can eat itself. And you can find that in Deuteronomy 25. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25 twice. He does it in 1 Corinthians 9, he does it in 1 Timothy 5, and both times he does it, what he does is he takes the principle that's at work with the ox and applies it somewhere else. In this case, to Christian workers who are serving vocationally in ministry. And it's the same principle that it applies to both. So in the Old Covenant, there's this law that is to protect animals. It's showing God's love for all that he's made, including the animals that he's made. Don't work an animal really hard and forbid them from being able to eat. That's just cruel. Don't do it. When you get to the New Covenant, Paul takes that law and says, that's a reminder of the way that as people, including animals, are serving, they should be able to be looked after in their service. So if you're serving in vocational Christian ministry, you should be supported in that work. See the difference? get to these secondary legislation, we might call them, the case law. And what's happening is the New Testament writers, this isn't preachers in 21st century England trying to work out what we're going to do with this text. The New Testament writers take the principle and apply it in a different context. Now, if you look at those distinctions, God's showing us that there is a difference between the Ten Commandments and the laws that follow. But what I just need you to clock in your mind is that if you were a Jew at this point, that would be a distinction without a difference, or a difference without a distinction. You know the term I'm trying to use. Um, Because right there, right then in ancient Israel, you're to obey all of them. And just in case our response as Brits who don't like rules and being told what to do shapes the way that we understand these laws. Just think about what it would have meant for those Old Testament Israelites who have just been rescued and seen the almighty power of God. They've just received the Ten Commandments that were so overwhelming. They ask God, please don't speak again. And then God says, I love you so much. I want you to know how you can love me in all of the every ordinary circumstances of your lives. That changes the way you think about the laws, doesn't it? It's not God saying, I'm really tight, I've got all these rules, and you're going to have no fun, but that's what it is to be my people. It's God saying, I love you so much, I've rescued you from slavery, and now I want you to understand how you can love me in all of the ordinary details of life. They're not just big principles that you're left thinking, well, what does that mean? The specifics. So that when you go into the workplace on Monday and when you have an argument in your family on Tuesday and whatever else may happen on Wednesday, you know what it is to put my law into practice to love me and to love one another. But that distinction between the commandments and the laws, it matters for us it helps us see that the laws that followed the Ten Commandments had a definite purpose. They were given by God to help his ethnic nation of Old Testament Jews to apply the Ten Commandments in their particular context. That's why sometimes they're referred to, these kinds of rules, as the civil law. Or the judicial law. This is the how you put it into practice in your community law. But it was never God's intention that these laws, as all the detail is, would continue forever as the Ten Commandments do. Because our situation is now very different. The Lord Jesus Christ has come and ushered in the new covenant. Who are the people of God now? It isn't those who believe in God or who are part of an ethnic group of Israel. Now, it's anyone who has come to repentance and faith in Jesus and is part of a body like this of the church that meets all over the world. So, what I want you to see is that when we work through these laws over the course of the next few weeks, there are going to be some laws that you look at and think, ah, oh, we should do that today. We're going to hit one law in the detail of everything that's coming up of don't curse God. Well, that applies today, right? Because we're still supposed to not curse God, just as his people of old were never to curse God. And then you're going to hit other laws, like offering up your firstborn son. And you're going to think, oh, I don't think we should do that. Do you see what the conundrum is for Christians, let alone for non-Christians? What gives you the right To pick and choose the ones that you think still apply today. The point of this whole section of law is it is showing us how to apply the Ten Commandments that God has given for all people in the specific context of Old Testament Israel. That period has now ended. Because God's dealing with his people now is through churches that meet all over the world who are living in very different countries with completely different legal systems, some of which, like North Korea, will kill you because you're a Christian. Others, like us, will allow some freedom, but some of that's being encroached. All of those different circumstances, God calls every Christian in those places to live out the Ten Commandments following the principles that we're going to see in these laws. So they're still relevant because they're showing you how to apply the Ten Commandments, but we don't copy and paste in the same way. Does that help? Seeing some nods. Okay, I'm going to crack on. That's the big picture. Now let's turn to the text. very first man-centered topic that God applies, all of this moral law to, is slavery. And every preacher goes, why slavery? Why slavery? Well, I prayed about that question a lot this week. And I've read as much as I can, and I've settled on three good reasons. There may be many more. Three good reasons why the very first topic that relates to people, we've thought about altars and worship last week, the very first topic that relates to people is slavery. Number one is the most obvious and the simplest because it's a really important outworking of the 4th and the 5th commandments. What does it mean to apply those principles of Sabbath rest? And how do we think about honoring the, the fullness, the, 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 um, the, the biggest stretch of the family, which is what these servants are being a part of? How do we do that? So it's the 4th and the 5th commandments. But secondly, the Jews had been slaves for 400 years. So we hit this text and it jars because it doesn't feel like anything that we're used to. For them, that's been their only experience for however many generations there are in 400 years. And what does God say? God says, chapter 23, verse 9, Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. In other words, as soon as God has rescued his people, given them the Ten Commandments, and then clarified how they're to worship him, he says, don't behave the way that you have just been treated. You've been called to be a different people, and I'm going to show you how to do that. But there's a third reason. A third reason why God addresses slavery first. It's not just because of Israel's history is so that we would see the heart of God for the most vulnerable. You think about the kinds of... All of you will have done history at some point, whether at school or university. You know enough about the ancient Near East to know that the slaves were treated like rubbish. And here is God speaking to his people, calling them to live now as a nation for the very first time and he is showing us his heart for the weakest and the most vulnerable. Why did God not say to this new nation, you shall have no slaves? I can't answer that question. I don't believe the Bible teaches us. Or if it does, I have not yet found that answer. But what God does is he looks at those people who are most likely to be taken advantage of or to be abused or not to be given any rights and he wraps his arms around them and says, in this world that has turned its back on me, where all the sufferings of sin are affecting all sorts of people, the very first group of people I want you to see how to love rightly are the ones who are most vulnerable and need it the most. That's what we start to see in what's going on here. Now, we've used the word slave slavery a number of times. I'm just going to assume that every single person in this room, when you hear those words, you're going to think of the transatlantic slave trade. 16th to 19th century. That, that is going to be foremost in your head, and therefore, you're already interpreting this text in light of that. So the next thing we have to do is see that what's described here is not that. I want you to see six ways in which what's being described here is not the same as that abominable sin. And I want you to see why it's different. So number one, stealing people is a sin. And if you were living under the Mosaic Covenant, so this group of laws that were given through Moses, you would be killed if you captured or traded anyone. Here is uh, Exodus 21, verse 16. If you drop down just a few verses. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. That one verse should have ended the transatlantic slave trade. Right there. Point number two. What's in view here is not racial slavery. Look at verse two. God is speaking to the Hebrews about Hebrew slaves, not foreign slaves. Difference number three. Any ill treatment of these Hebrew slaves was forbidden. Look down at verses 26 and 27. Masters were not allowed to abuse, to hit, to, to uh, inflict any punishment in that sense on their servants. And if they did, the servant is free to leave and must be compensated for their injury. Difference number four. If any Hebrew slave ran away. They were to be welcomed and protected by the family that received them. If you want to look at that when you get home, we haven't got time now. Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 to 16. Difference number five. This kind of service is time limited. Look back at verse two. You serve for six years and then the servant's free to go. And not only that, difference number six, last one. When the servants are freed, their master's required to send them off with enough resources so that they can set up a new life. So here's Deuteronomy chapter 15. verse 12, uh, I'll pick up at verse 13. When you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your your threshing floor, and your winepress. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord God has redeemed you. That's why I give you this commandment today. Can you see how completely different what this is by comparison to the slave trade? This servanthood is voluntary, temporary, and intended to prepare people for freedom. So why then would a Hebrew become an Exodus 21 type slave? Probably the main reason was debt. You you imagine that as in our society... People had borrowed what they couldn't repay or in any other way got themselves into financial trouble and they were left with more debt than they could repay. A solution God offers is that you could, in one sense, sell yourself, but you're essentially selling your debt to a master who would then agree to pay that debt and repay you over a six-year period and then enable you to go free. Others may have been wanting to achieve a better life. I think that's what's going on in verses 7 to 11. We'll come to them in a minute. But I think what is going on here is you've got parents with daughters longing to provide for them in ways that they can't, thinking, if it's possible for us to attach them to this family, they would have better opportunities in their life moving forwards. But the key thing to see, whichever of those two things is going on, Is that this is not, this is absolutely not a means of enabling abuse for slaves who become dehumanized. This is designed to rehabilitate irresponsible Jews who've got themselves into debt. This is designed to protect those who are seeking to make more of their lives. Verses 7 to 11. All of this in other words, has got a redemptive purpose. All of this is designed to ensure that by the end of this short period of time, as people leave, they are in a better situation than they were at the beginning. That's the picture in verse 2. A man has come into this servitude, this slavery, with some kind of debt. He's worked it off over the period of the six years and he is then a free man. And not just a free man, A man who has joined this family that was big enough to employ him for that period, to pay off his debt, who therefore have got some kind of local business, whether it's farming, whether it's manufacturing, whatever it may be, they have equipped him over those six years to do that job well enough to be paid and then once free to use that job to earn his living for the rest of his life. That's what's going on. And at the point that he leaves, verse 3, he is free to leave with whomever he came into service with. Then you get to verse 4, and it sounds harsh. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. I want us all, for the next however many months that we're in these laws, to just have a little mental tick in our head. Every time we come across a law that seems harsh, I want you to think, this is God's law that he gave to his people whom he loves so much he just rescued them. It can't be harsh. How do I understand it? That's what we need to do here. And of all the stuff that I read during the course this, this week, I think Philip Reichen gets this as, as helpful as anybody else does. Philip says, remember that the husband and father in this case was a former debtor. If his servitude had served its purpose, he was now ready to become a productive member of the covenant community. Soon he'd be able to buy his family's freedom and enable them all to live under one roof, his roof. But if he'd failed to learn his lesson and went back into that, He would be back in debt, and this time his wife and children would have to suffer the consequences too. So for the time being, the safest thing was for them to remain under the care of their master. They're still a family, but the woman and children would remain in the master's household until their husband and father could take full responsibility for them in a God-honoring way. I think that's the most helpful way that you can see what is going on in verse 4. And it's preparing us for something that would otherwise take us by surprise in verses 5 and 6. Some servants would so love their master that they would willingly forego freedom in order to stay. And that's a completely willing choice. Moses, speaking what God has shared to him, is is explicit about that. So you look in verse 5. This master chooses to stay because they love not only their family, but also Their master. And when you go back into Deuteronomy, Moses digs into that a little bit further. He says, But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you, because he loves you and your family and is well off. See, the whole point about this form of slavery in Old Testament Israel was not that you be left poor and in a dreadful state, it's about rehabilitation. Here is a slave who not only loves his master, but he looks at his life circumstance and realizes he's really well off. All of this is about rehabilitation and protection, not robbery and punishment. And no one master could force their servant to stay for longer. That's what God is protecting against in verse 6. And there's layers and layers of protection here. So if you're the servant, even if you love your master, you can't just say, I'm going to stay for good, quickly, in a whim. This has to be a decision that's verified. Verified by the, they're called the judges. There's confusion about, is this a reference to God? Is this to the judges? I think it's the judges speaking on God's behalf. To make sure that this man is making his decision completely freely. And if he does so, at that point, his ear gets pierced with a sharp metal tool, it's called an awl here, symbolizing that by his own choice for the rest of his life, he promises to hear what his master tells him and to obey him for the rest of his life. Now hopefully that explains God's grace over verses 1 to 6. What's trickier is when you get to verses 7 to 11, if 1 to 6 weren't also tricky. Um, And in part, what is trickier here is that there seem to be some significant differences. So if you look in verse 7, female servants aren't free to leave after six years like a male slave. That doesn't seem fair, does it? And then in verse 9, we're reminded that we're talking here in Exodus 21 about a very different cultural context where arranged marriages are the complete norm. And that takes us some getting used to. But even if you can adjust to that, surely, surely verse 10 is wrong. Surely we don't need to have provision for polygamous marriages. See the hard questions that are coming up in these verses Again, come back, hard question, challenge my own thought. It can't be that God's being harsh. God loves his daughters. So how is God protecting female servants here? I think we have to read verses 7 to 11 as one unit. Verse 7 isn't different because God is sexist. Verse 7 is different because we're looking at a different form of service. We need to use the word of slavery. Because whether it's for the master or the son, this daughter's being pledged for marriage. And that's going to change things. Because at the end of a six-year period, if somebody has got married, that's not then the end to their marriage. So you look in verse 9. If she's given in marriage to the master's son, that change in that relationship means that the master is to treat her like a daughter, with all of the legal protection that comes with that. And that, if you remember, this family that sent this daughter off in that situation, that's exactly what they've been praying for. They've been longing that they would be able to provide by sending her to a different family for her future in ways that they never could. But that's not always how it ends. Verse 8, it's possible that the relationship doesn't work out. Then what happens? Well, if you're in any other ancient Near Eastern country at this point, bad stuff happens. If the relationship doesn't work well, if for whatever reason you don't please the person that you are with, then you are facing not only abuse in that home, but also the possibility of being sold off somewhere else to who knows who and what might happen. But not in Israel. If the master wasn't pleased with her, look at the end of verse 8. That was his fault, not hers. And to provide protection for this woman in that situation, what God does is he enables the family that have sent her to be with this family to redeem her, to buy her back with the money that they've received. So it's not an impossible thing for them to do. Verses 10 and 11, they're thinking about a different possible outcome. What happens if the master or the son, and I'm not entirely sure who's in view here, um, but what happens if the man that she's married to marries someone else as well? Again, put yourself in the situation of the ancient Near East. That's just tough. And you might not be wife number two. You might be wife number 74. You're just going to have to lump it. But not in Israel. God protects his daughters in this uniquely challenging situation. I do not know why God didn't condemn polygamy right here and now any more than I don't know why he didn't end slavery right here and now. That wasn't his plan. But what he does is he curbs the effects of human sin at this moment to protect those women. He makes sure that they are provided for in every way that they need, and if their husband fails, they are free to leave. Now, if you're anything like me, there are questions in your head that this one text doesn't answer. But the answers that God does give, I hope help you to see that he is good and you can trust him. Here is God providing ways that will absolutely forbid any form of abusive or controlling slavery for those who are irresponsible and got themselves in debt, for those who are trying to make massive life changes and provide for their children, God provides a voluntary, temporary, redemptive process to rehabilitate and protect those people. But what in the world does that have to do for you and me today? How do we understand these principles today? We don't have servants as is even described here and we are very thankful for Wilberforce and many others who ensured that the, the slave trade is a is a horrible stain on history and not a present practice but what do we do with a passage like this three things for our culture before we get to Jesus and we'll be quick number one God hates all forms of oppressive slavery Yes, the transatlantic slave trade is over. I went onto to the National Crime Agency's website this week where they underestimate that there are thousands of men and women and boys and girls in our country who are living in abject, abject terror. That is sinful and evil and God hates it. And we need to pray against that modern slavery. And if there are any of you who have opportunity to seek to protect those who are suffering in that area, we need to pray for God's richest blessing on what you do. Secondly, there are principles for us to learn here as a society when we think about how to rehabilitate someone. An offender, somebody who's messed up or committed a crime, whatever it may be, the temptation can be, we'll give you bed and board and then you just find your own way. That's not how God provided for his people to rehabilitate others in Israel. They would have someone, in fact, they would go and live with somebody else who would re-equip them who would prepare them not only to deal with whatever needs to be repaid, but then to be able to provide for their family and for themselves in the future. What's needed is people coming alongside to train, to equip, to change the way that people think and behave. And some of you do work in that world. And we need to pray for God's richest blessing on you as you seek to do this kind of work in your workplace. Way number three, there are principles here for us to learn about how employers best equip their employees. Now, I know it's not the same as the master-servant relationship, but I want you to see the contrast. If you're in the old covenant and it was God's requirement that masters looked at their servants and didn't only think it's my job to repay you the debt that I've said I'll cover until you've worked it off. It's my job to invest in you in such a way that not only are you able to go on into the future, but when you leave my service, I'm going to generously give you enough to be able to set yourself up for that season of life. If that's necessary there, (laughs) when you come to modern employment... What a privilege those of you have who are employers to invest in your employees in more than just, I'm going to give you a fair wage. Do you see the contrast? What God is calling, if you have that great privilege and opportunity in employment, whether it's you're in middle management or at the top, wherever it may be, God is giving you an opportunity to so pour into somebody else that you are going to transform and help them moving forwards in their vocation. Three ways to think about applying this in our culture. Finally, I want you to see a beautiful way these verses point us to Jesus. And this isn't lip service. This isn't me trying to make some gospel application to a hard text at the end of a sermon. Look at verse five. It should amaze us to think that there would ever be a servant who so loved his master that he would willingly forego his freedom in order to stay. Jesus is even more amazing than that. Because he's God's eternal son. He isn't a servant who chooses to stay. He's the master who chose to come. And he came into a world, not only to please his father, and bring him great glory. But to rescue ratbags had ruined his kingdom, didn't want anything to do with him, and weren't interested in following him. That's me. That's you if you're a Christian. And in order to make that rescue happen, Jesus didn't come into our world and offer his ear for an owl to be put through it to make a small hole in a doorpost. He had nails put through his hands and his feet so that on the cross he could bear not only that agony but the spiritual judgment of God of all of my sin and your sin if you've repented and trusted in him. And why did he do all of that? He did it so that when he rose from the grave, you would know that the master's son who became a servant has brought you into God's family forever. And that changes how we think what it is to be a Christian. What does it mean for us to follow in the footsteps of someone like that? Someone who is so gripped by the love of God that he would willingly give everything, including his life, for him. Well, how can you apply that in your week this week? How can you be challenged afresh to think of the enormity of the love of the Son of God for the Father and for the lost, that he would willingly give up everything, including his life, in order to save you? It must mean, that we do the same. That there is no part of your life, there is no area of sin struggle that you are resting with, there is no part of your financial budget that you are thinking about, there is no part in your diary of your time that you are thinking about that shouldn't be given to Jesus. So that we would be people that love the Father the same way that Jesus does. Great God in heaven, we ask and pray that you would help us to see that you are good and gracious and kind. Father, there are parts of your word that we struggle to understand as clearly. We pray that your spirit would open them up to us. Father, we pray that you would help us to be people that don't judge your word by our worldly standards, but would hear you in everything that you say, And that your word would shape the way that we look at our world. For it is your world. A world that you love so much that you would send your son to do what we could never do. That we would choose to be your servants forever. Father, we pray that you would liberate us from the lie that our freedom is our great goal. Thank you that our freedom in Christ is to be bound to him. We pray that you would help us to see what a great privilege and gift that is. And Father, we ask that we as a church family would be constantly growing in our understanding of your words, that we would handle it rightly, that we would bring you glory as we do, and that we would answer those good and important questions from our world in ways that show them the glory, the splendor, and the grace that are yours. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. And the people of God said, Amen.